Habakkuk. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. The Lord responds in verse 5 by saying, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Our Heavenly Father, in this time of uncertainty, of setbacks, of frustrations, for some in this time of illness, for some in this time of loneliness, for some in this time of unemployment, for some in this time of sorrow, Lord, we pray that you continue to work in our church and in our global church in the work of spreading the good news of your gospel of loving our neighbor as ourselves, and of being light in a dark world. In a time where there are so many negatives, we pray and trust that you are working in these times for good. We pray for our church and the aftermath of this season. We pray that we would be transformed as people and as a church more and more into the people you want us to be. Like caterpillars inside of a chrysalis, May we emerge from this season transformed. May we devote more time to you, more time to prayer, more time to rest, more time to your word. May we join together in praying for a time to come soon when we are able to come together and worship in unity. In Jesus' name, amen. This week... And for another few weeks, we're going to be looking at a section of John chapter 5 where the Lord Jesus will make several claims about who he is and his relationship to God. These are monumentally important texts which help form our theological understanding of the doctrine of Christ, or Christology as it's more commonly referred. Christology is important because it informs our understanding of the Trinity, of Jesus, and of the gospel. But as we begin, I want to be very clear that this section is in the deep end of the pool, theologically. Theologically, this is very dense, very weighty material. Along with the opening prologue in John chapter 1, here in chapter 5 is another section which is full of theological affirmations about the nature of Christ. That being said, I think chapter 5 is more intellectually rigorous. Chapter 1 is very important. It's like high school. Chapter 5 is like graduate school. I don't say that to intimidate. We should be excited to study this passage and the following passages in chapter 5. I know I am. Chapter 5 is a section of this book that I've had my eye on since the beginning of our study in the Gospel of John. And with that, we'll begin in our text this morning. And we'll be looking at three things. First thing is that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Just to remind us of where we are in this passage and what happened last week, John 5 begins with Jesus healing a man who's been unable to walk for 38 years. He tells him in chapter 5, verse 8, 
take up his bed and walk. And the man is healed and able to walk. It's miraculous. But some of the Pharisees are nearby and they say that they're not so much impressed by this miracle, but they're critical of the fact that this was done on the Sabbath. They see this man carrying his bed, which they consider to be work, and they view that as a violation of the Sabbath. And one of the things that we talked about last week was that this was not explicitly a violation of an Old Testament command relating to the Sabbath, but rather the Pharisees had added dozens of extra rules on top of the Sabbath commands in order to try to force compliance. So the Pharisees questioned the man. Interestingly, the miracle itself is what led to all this controversy about the Sabbath. It leads to the Pharisees plotting to kill Jesus. And it leads to this long discourse from the Lord Jesus where he will talk about his relationship with God. And it's a speech that will continue all the way through the end of this chapter. And so at the beginning of this morning's passage, the man is pointing Jesus out to the Pharisees. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. The passage never paints the man whom Jesus healed in a particularly favorable light. But it's all part of the divine will and plan. Jesus will address the Pharisees on the subject of the Sabbath in verses 16 and 17. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Think about that statement. My father is working until now, and I am working. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say your view of the Sabbath is wrong or your laws of the Sabbath are more restricted than warranted. Those could have been fair points. But when questioned about breaking the Sabbath, Jesus instead responds, my father is working until now and I am working. Do you see what Jesus is saying though? It can be easy to miss. Jesus says that God is always working and that Therefore, Jesus is also always working. God is always at work. He is sovereign over creation. Even on the Sabbath, God is working. There is never a time where God stops being God or stops his work of ruling and reigning over his creation. And it is because God is always working, and it is because Jesus is God, that he is therefore justified to be working on the Sabbath. Jesus is not violating the Sabbath. Jesus never violates the laws. Jesus never sins. The command to keep the Sabbath, the heart of that in the Old Testament is Man working to pursue his own work and his own goals and ends. The Sabbath is the holy day, and it's meant to be given to the Lord. But doing God's work on the Sabbath is not a violation of the Sabbath. It's honoring the Sabbath. And that's true for everyone. For Christians, I do believe that we still are to observe the Lord's Day, not as a punishment, but as a gift God has given us to take one day every week and rest and celebrate and worship God and his goodness and to serve him and his kingdom. 
So that's our first point. Second point, which is where we'll spend most of our time today, the fatherhood of God and the sonship of Christ. Returning to what we've already quoted from verse 17, where Jesus says, My father is working until now, and I am working. When Jesus talks of how his father works on the Sabbath, and that he too is working, that was a powder keg. It's a theologically loaded statement. Now, it's so much a part of our vernacular. It's so ingrained into how we think about God as our heavenly father that I think it can be easy to lose sight of how radical a statement it was that Jesus was making. Jesus refers to the God of creation as his father. Jesus is not being seeker-sensitive in saying that. In the Old Testament, there were appropriate forms of address for God. Father was not one of them. The first Jewish person to refer to God as their father was Jesus. There are a few texts which refer to God as being the father of Israel. But that's not how individuals personally address God. It's fairly uncommon in pagan religions before the time of Jesus for people to speak in this way. It's uncommon in all of the world's major religions. The only real exception is Sikhism, which wasn't founded until about 600 years ago. It's not generally part of religious parlance to refer to God as your father. But Jesus calls God his father. It's really pretty personal and intimate language to be using in referring to God. To this point in in the Gospel of John, Jesus has made a reference to the temple as his father's house in chapter 2. But the language of the fatherhood of God will start to become more and more commonplace throughout this gospel. From this point forward, Jesus will make dozens of references to God as his father or God as the father. Just in this chapter, Jesus will talk of the fatherhood of God 14 more times. And the fatherhood language and showing the relationship between Jesus and God becomes much more theologically dense in this gospel. But how does Jesus have a father? What does it even mean that God is Jesus' father? Jesus is uncreated and eternal. He's God and has always been God. John 1.1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So how does Jesus have a father? What I'd like to do is consider several aspects of fatherhood and what it means. D.A. Carson brings up that when we think of fatherhood today, oftentimes we tend to just think of that biologically. A man and a woman procreate and have an offspring, and the man is the father of the child. I'm influenced by the work of Carson on this subject, as well as people like Michael Horton and Louis Burkhoff, among others. The child has the father's DNA. I think that's the first place our mind goes when we think of fatherhood. And that's certainly true. In one sense, the fatherhood of God and sonship of Christ relates to the incarnation where the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is eternal and uncreated. 
but he was not eternally man. In the union of Christ's humanity and divinity, he was born. Luke 1, verses 31 and 32, where the angel Gabriel is speaking to Mary of the son whom she is to bear, says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And Jesus was indeed born, as we learn in Luke 2, 7. Unto unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In his humanity, Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit through the will of God. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus always was, but he was not always human. How can an eternal being be born and fully man? That's a divine mystery. But he was born, and in that sense, he is the Son of God. The Word became flesh. That's not saying that Jesus simply took on a human body like he was in the driver's seat of some sort of vehicle, but that he became flesh. He became man. So he's the Son of God incarnationally. But that's not the only sense in which Jesus is the Son of God. Secondly, Jesus is the Son of God from an ethical standpoint. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. In that usage, he's saying that in one sense, it is acting like God which makes us a son. Follow me for a second. Again, borrowing an idea from D.A. Carson. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, most people went into the same vocation as their parents. If your father was a farmer, you were a farmer. If your father was a fisherman, you were a fisherman. If your father was a blacksmith, you were a blacksmith. You did what your father did. You were trained by your father. Some people still go into their parents' profession, which is all well and good, but it's not expected or assumed the way it was in previous eras. But our Heavenly Father is perfect and righteous. We are not. So Jesus ties acting like our Father in heaven to sonship. We've all heard the phrase like father, like son. Jesus ties our moral behavior to acting like a son of our Heavenly Father. He does the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And that goes both ways, for for good and for evil. In Acts chapter 13, verse 10, Paul calls a magician named Elinus, he calls him a son of the devil. Now, Jesus is the only one who is truly perfect. In his ministry in the world, he truly lived as God because he himself is divine, fully man, fully divine, and without sin. And he is morally the Son of God. A third way, Jesus is the royal Son of God. In the Old Testament, the kings of Israel and the Davidic dynasty are sometimes referred to as God's Son. The king didn't refer to God as his father the way Jesus does, but he's proclaimed to be God's Son. 
We see this in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 talks of the kings of the earth and their opposition to God, but then talks of a king whom God has called his son. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. In the Old Testament, this applies to the Davidic kings. We see that language again in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the temple is dedicated. Verses 13 and 14. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Referring to the king of Israel. But the kings are still ultimately sinful in their leading of the people. In Jesus, though, he is the true royal son who came into the world and preached the kingdom of God. Then we have Israel, collectively as a people, referred to as God's son. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 9 calls Israel the firstborn. It says, for I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Reminder that Ephraim refers to the northern kingdom. Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Moses has been sent by God to command Pharaoh to free the Israelites. Moses is told, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. With Israel, they had the law and failed to keep it. Jesus kept it perfectly. Moses gave the law on a mountain. Jesus gave the new law in the Sermon on the Mount. They were in the wilderness and sinned. Jesus went into the wilderness and was tempted, but did not sin. The book of Hosea refers to Israel when it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. And that same verse is again applied to Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. He is the greater Israel, the greater son. Jesus is the Son of God in the sense that he is the image of God. The image of God idea goes back to creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. And goes on to say in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's not until the New Testament that Adam is referred to as God's son. We see that in the genealogy of Christ in Luke chapter 3. The son of Adam, the son of God. Again, I'm not talking about Adam biologically being the son of God or son of God by DNA. But he's metaphorically the son of God in the sense that he is created in the image of God. Man is created in God's image, but humanity is also sinful and fallen. Romans 5.10 says, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We don't have time to quote the whole passage from Romans, but Paul is building an argument. He'll say in verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And then I'll say in verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned, 
He's referring to Adam. Through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying in Romans 5 is he's talking about two men, Adam and Jesus. And he's saying that Jesus is the new Adam, the greater Adam. He is the firstborn of a new people of God because of his sinlessness and the forgiveness that he gives through the gospel. Sin entered the world through Adam. And Jesus is the new Adam who is without sin and comes to bring grace. Jesus is the greater Adam and the truest example of the image of God. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, In these last days, He, referring to God, has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Referring to Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He is the greatest example of the image of God. And in that sense, Jesus is the true son. I'm giving all of these examples because Jesus as the son of God and God as the father of Jesus means something. It's not a haphazardly chosen title. But I bring us back to John. And bring us back to a third scene in the Gospel of John. As a result of everything that Jesus has said, referring to God as his father, it leads into a conspiracy to crucify Jesus. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the language of fatherhood and sonship. It'll continue to be important in this chapter and also throughout this Gospel. And so it's important to have a, a rich understanding of how these ideas work in the Bible. But it's at the end of the passage where we see the consequences of what Jesus has just said. Verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. We know the end of the story. Jesus is ultimately crucified. But it is because Jesus said that God was his father that it jump-started the Pharisees in their conspiracy against him. In an event which is not recorded in John's gospel, in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is before the Pharisees, and the sonship question comes up again when he's before the Pharisees. Matthew 26, verses 63 and 64. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's the final straw in Matthew's gospel. And the Pharisees, as a result of that, seek to have Jesus crucified. The text continues, Then the high priest tore his robe and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, 
Who is it who struck you? And that leads to the crucifixion. The Pharisees in this passage in John chapter 5 look to what Jesus has said as blasphemy. But it wasn't. It was the truth. Incarnationally, morally, theologically, Jesus is the Son of God, and God is the Father. But in our passage today, we see the opposition rising. What started as a miracle, healing this poor man, turned into a Sabbath controversy. And what became a Sabbath controversy was intensified by Jesus pointing to himself and his relation to God. The sonship of Christ and the fatherhood of God points us to the gospel. We are God's children created in his image who have forsaken God through sin. Jesus is the perfect son who was forsaken so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And as radical as it is that Jesus addressed God as his father, he invites us to do the same. When he taught his disciples how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The apostle Paul says in the opening salutation of all of his letters, grace and peace to you from God our father in the Lord Jesus Christ. The fatherhood of God is bestowed upon the people of God because Jesus is the true Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God who allows us to be adopted as God's children and to approach God as our own Father. As it says in the opening section of this book, chapter 1, verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become Children of God. The adoption language is used by Paul at the beginning of his letter to the Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. The Son of God allows us to call God our Father. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, I do thank you that we can call you our Heavenly Father, Lord. What a blessing that is to be part of your family, to be adopted as your sons and daughters because of the grace bestowed by your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for the life that he lived for us so that we can be reconciled to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.